Hello and welcome to another episode of Locked on Vikings, everybody. I am your host, your pal, and the kid you copied off in math class. My name is Luke Braun. You can find me on Twitter at LukeBraunNFL. You can find the show on Twitter at Locked on Vikings. You can find this show anywhere you find your favorite shows, like the Himalaya Podcast app, and anywhere else like iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, anywhere you like to find podcasts. And if you don't like that, you can always ask your smart speaker to play podcast Locked on Vikings. We have a pretty fun one here for you today. We get a little abstract. We have. I, I'm very excited to talk about my prospect of the day today. But first, a quick element of housekeeping. So in yesterday's episode, I talked about Jeffrey Simmons in Mock Draft Monday. He was my second round pick. And I talked about kind of some of his red, red flags and his past and, and the whole redemption, second chance angle. And then I said that because the Vikings hadn't met with him, I kind of said, well, you know, it's probably unlikely that the Vikings take him. Well, it turns out I was wrong about that. I had missed that last week there was... A meeting with Jeffrey Simmons. He did come in and, and do the meeting. So I, that whole point is kind of rendered incorrect. They have met with him. They've shown the interest. And then it becomes a matter of how that interview goes, right? And like how, you know, they're going to ask him about those things and, and how he comes off. And if he comes off as somebody who truly is making the most and is appreciative of his second chance or somebody that feels like he got away with it or whatever, you know, the vibe that they get in that interview might take him off the board or it could keep him on it. And then he becomes, you know, a very desirable interior defense. Lyman. So again, my apologies for getting that wrong. I was using a, a meeting tracker that it turns out was unreliable. So I, I will place my trust elsewhere for now. Uh, but moving on, we have some details about Adam Thielen's contract. Now, yesterday when I talked about the extension, I said, you know, I'm only going to talk about the details if they're different than what I expect. And it turns out that they are. So here we are. Uh, I was expecting the Vikings to use this as an opportunity to convert t- some salary to signing bonus and save a little bit of money against the cap by reducing Adam Thielen's cap hit. Well, it turns out that they kind of did that. They did give him a $9 million signing bonus, but they only did enough to make it so that Adam Thielen's cap hit is basically exactly the same as it was going to be anyways. He was slated to make $8.1 million. Now he makes $8.105 million, so $5,000 more against the cap. So he didn't clear any space, and that means that the Vikings still have some space to clear, which means another move might be on the horizon. There might be another restructure in the books, another, you know, a a signing bonus salary move in the books, or maybe just a trade or some sort of cap casualty move that we haven't seen yet. That said, you know, a lot of the the moves they could have made have expired now, you know, once the league year started, like, they can't cut Everson Griffin. All that money's guaranteed now, and that's true of a lot of the players that we kind of advocated cutting or restructuring or, or getting rid of in some way to get rid of their cap hit. So that's pretty interesting with this contract. And the other interesting thing is that there's only 14.1 million of that. I think it could go all the way up to like 83 or something with all the incentives. Only 14.1 of it is guaranteed at signing. And that is also a very interesting move and something that's not necessarily characteristic of the Vikings who tend to pump up the guarantees in exchange for lower cap numbers. They say, we'll guarantee money and we'll make sure, you know, you have your security and everything. And that's something that the players are usually willing to accept. But in this case, there's a lot that isn't guaranteed. You know, say Adam Thielen, you know, suffered a horrible injury and regressed really bad or something. The Vikings could cut him next year with very little penalty. And each year, like, he has to be on the roster 
by the third day of that league year. So it was kind of like the Everson Griffin contract or the Trey Waynes thing where you can ask him to restructure, you could cut him for a cap casualty, like right at the beginning of the league year, and then like not incur as many penalties. And that gives the Vikings a lot of flexibility. I'm frankly surprised that Adam Thielen agreed to such a thing, although the number, you know, the, the numbers were pretty good and he's getting paid a lot heading into, you know, his like early to mid 30s, 33 and 34. And that's something that I brought up yesterday and that I brought up over the weekend on Twitter when the contract was signed was that, hey, that's a worry that you just tacked four years onto a contract that are going to kick in when the guy turns 30. And that is going to mean that you are incurring a little bit of risk. And that's okay. I'm absolutely okay taking that risk for a player of Thielen's caliber. But we don't know. As good as Thielen is, we don't know how age is going to affect him. You never do. So having a big giant contract and like playing into that risk was surprising to me, but it appears that the Vikings also share that concern about age because they can cut him if he regresses. If he hits that age cliff and he is no longer the receiver he was, you can cut him and save the money. So I, I do think that that bear that warrants talking about, those are the things that are really different than what I thought. Otherwise, you know, the contract is still fairly friendly, and the Vikings can roll into 2019 and beyond with a fairly secure idea that Adam Thielen will be a member of their team until his career comes to an end, and that's really nice. So that's all I'm going to say about that for now, but I do also want to, before I head into the ad break, I do want to plug the Locked On NFL Mock Draft. This is a really cool project, and, and I'm not even required to like say this on the show. This I just think it's genuinely cool, and I want to plug it. Uh, so... All of the Locked On podcasts got together and did a mock draft. We all did like a minute or two, maybe three, on who we are taking. Mine goes up on Wednesday, uh, and they will upload this in chunks each day of the week. So the first one, first two should already be up by the time you're listening to this. And essentially it works like this. They have the hosts of Locked On NFL are hosting the mock draft, and they will kick it to whatever team show is up. So, you know, the Locked On Cardinals, the Locked On 49ers, the Locked On Jets, etc., and they'll go make the pick, and then they will kick to the Locked On podcast for that college, because they do have college football shows. So, you know, when you pick Nick Bosa, they'll go to the Locked On Ohio State podcast and they'll break down and say, yeah, this is what I've been watching for the last four years of this guy. And then they also have experts on the different position groups. They have a guy that is like the resident expert on defensive line or on front seven, and they have the wide receiver expert and all that. And so they'll kick around all these guys and get all of this expertise, not to mention guys from Locked On NFL Draft and from the Draft Network, like uh, Ben Solak and Joe Marino and Kyle Krabs and these guys that like know what they're talking about in a more general sense and can definitely like more generally break down the landscape of the draft. It's a whole bunch of really cool resources, and it's a mock draft. I don't think you really ever see one like that. I mean, we've got everybody has their, like, draft simulations and their mocks that they do as part of, like, their article writing and all that. But this is something really unique, and I just think y'all should go listen to it. Um, I actually have no idea what they're going to say about my pick. I won't spoil it yet. I think I might have already on Twitter, but whatever. Uh, but listen to it on Wednesday, at least, to see where where I go with the Vikings pick. And I, And I'm really curious to see what they all think about the pick that I made. So I'm going to step away to a quick ad break, and then when I come back, we'll talk about the prospect of the day. See you guys in a second. All right, welcome back. So let's talk about the prospect of the day. And the reason I want to talk about this guy is because I see him in just about everybody's mock draft 
from Vikings fans to fans of other teams. You know, I, I see him get drafted in just about everybody's sim. So it's Austin Bryant out of Clemson. And I think the reason he's in everybody's draft sim is that, you know, you're sitting in the sixth or seventh round. I'm even guilty of this. The first mock draft Monday, I drafted Austin Bryant in the seventh round. And, and I think you're just sitting there looking for anything that jumps out to you at that point, because you're not going to be as familiar with the sixth and seventh rounders as you are with the first and second round guys. And you're looking for the offensive linemen and stuff. Near the end of it, you're just kind of looking for a guy that isn't uh, one of the 18,000 running backs left and you see an edge rusher from Clemson and you're like, all right, Clemson's always had a good defensive line. Give me a guy from there. How bad can he be? It's just a seventh rounder. This has to be like at least a value pick, right? And I wanted to talk about him because I wanted to like talk more specifically about who he is as an edge rusher, why he always falls to the sixth or seventh, even though he was a four-star recruit and he went to Clemson and he started there for three years. Like a guy that started at Clemson for three years, and we talked about this during the Mock Draft Monday. If you started at Clemson for three years and you came out of high school as a four-star recruit and stuff, there is no reason that you should not be a superstar. And if you aren't, that means that there are going to be some fatal flaws in your play. And if as soon as you pull up the tape, you're going to see kind of the same thing. There is a problem in just about every aspect of his game. You know, he, he shows the functional athleticism to have range, but he doesn't quite have enough range and guys can get the edge on him. And, you know, he doesn't quite have like pass rush counters. He doesn't have hand technique. He doesn't rush with a plan. That's something we've talked about a lot. And, and so, you know, you don't see that like mental side to his game. You don't see that like tenacity, not that he has a work ethic problem or anything, but he gets blown around all the time. And he had okay production, but most of that production came in moments where he was schemed open or where he was unblocked because they screwed up the protection or something like that. So like placing all of that into context, and then you realize that he's surrounded by these crazy Clemson defensive linemen that are all going to go in the first and second round. And you kind of realize that this guy was, it kind of reminds me of like the Ray Edwards of this, where Ray Edwards, if you remember from like the 2009 defensive line, where you had Kevin and Pat Williams, and you kind of had to double team both of those guys, and then you had to do something about Jared Allen too, and Ray Edwards was just left on an island all day, and he kind of ate. That kind of feels like what Austin Bryan has gotten, except to even a greater extreme. So, you know, you see a guy with a lot of problems, but... He was a four-star recruit, and even though he got an injury, which is also going to pull up a little bit of a red flag, like, is he going to be ready for camp, or are you going to be able to help him transition into the NFL like he has to? Um, And the other problem with that is that he couldn't participate at the Combine, so you don't get any of the tested measurables that would tell you, hey, you know, is the athleticism that I am or am not seeing on tape, like, actually real? It's hard to know how he would have tested, and we'll never know, so we'll just have to go off of the tape where he looks like he is fine, but he physically looks the part. If you if he walked up to you and said, I am an edge rusher in the NFL, you wouldn't question it because he has the height and the length and all of that, but on the field, does that translate? You know, is he able to use that length and beat people? Um, I, I think, you know, Jordan Reed, his draft guide, which is a must-buy, go buy it, and he donates the money to charity, like, stop screwing around and just go buy JR's draft guide. But in that draft guide, he talks about Austin Bryant, and, and he kind of says, listen, he's got all the length and he's got all the tools, uh, but he doesn't, like, have any natural, crazy, high-potential ability, and he kind of doesn't really know what he's doing, and there's always going to be a coach that thinks that they have the magic potion, that has, you know, they have the salve, they have the key, and, and they alone can coach him up, and, you know, you see, ah, give me a guy with the length, you know, you can't teach length, but you can teach everything else, and the coaches kind of think that they can teach everything else, but when it's everything, wouldn't you rather just find a guy, like, if you have to teach someone everything, wouldn't you rather find a guy with high athleticism, and hey, in the seventh round, that might not be the case, but there are guys, I mean, in, in Mock Draft Monday yesterday, we drafted Wyatt Ray, that's a guy who has 
just about as many problems technique-wise as Austin Bryant, but has a way higher ceiling because of his athleticism. And there are some people that have athletic ceilings but are just really raw or they're position converts or whatever. Like, I'm going to take one of those guys because if I can make it work, at least I get something back. Austin Bryant's ceiling might be as a rotational backup. And I think he's, you know, he's a really good example of the principle that you have to look beyond the uniform. You you cannot look and say he played for Clemson, he must be good. Because that's not always going to be the case. Bad people go through good teams all the time in college. And, And even though they were good recruits, they just never figure it out. I mean, he started for three years. He has the experience you would expect to see development over that time. So there's just a lot of like, I don't want to call them red flags because that kind of elicits an emotion of like he had an off field issue or something, but they're kind of flaggy. And there are issues that I don't feel confident, even with as good of coaching as the Vikings have, I don't feel confident that coaching can make this kid suddenly learn how to play defensive line at an NFL caliber level. I think if you do take him in the seventh round, I'm putting him directly on the roster bubble and I'm saying, I don't know if you beat out Tashawn Bauer. Like, I, I do think, like, his ceiling might be a Tashawn Bauer level guy who's going to be fighting for his roster spot every single year. There's about 100,000 players out there with long arms and, you know, lanky builds and who can, you know, bench press enough to let you know that they're like NFL caliber defensive linemen. Um, I either want one that is comes out of the box ready and polished, you know, ready to be a backup or somebody who doesn't come out of the box ready, but with a little bit of cooking can outperform their draft stock. Like, you know, Shamar Stefan did. He was a seventh rounder. He's now competing to start that you never expect a seventh rounder to be competing to start even if, even years into their career like Stefan is. You know, that is somebody who outperformed their draft stock. I don't see Austin Bryant getting there. I think if he makes huge, large strides, he's fighting for a roster spot. Otherwise, he's practice squad quality until he flames out of the league. And I I just don't think, like, I wouldn't draft him. And as an undrafted free agent, then all bets are off, you know, taking whoever you can get. But I would not spend a draft pick on him. There are going to be better players to get the rights to via the last rounds of the draft. So, you know, I see him in a lot of mock drafts and I don't think I'm going to be able to put him in any other ones after looking into him for prospect of a day of the day. Uh, But it is very interesting that I saw him in so many. So before we get into the main topic of the day, I just want to talk really quick about the Himalaya podcasting app. It's a new app that can help you make sense of all of the crazy volume of podcasts out there. There's just so much to sift through and they have curated playlists for you and new features every day to help you make sense of podcasts and improve your listening experience. So go to the app store, download Himalaya, subscribe to Locked on Vikings and whatever other podcasts you listen to and see if you like it. If not, we're not going to leave Podbean, Stitcher and all that. You can always come back and listen to us the way that you always listen to us. But hey, go give Himalaya a try. It is like the new wave of podcasting apps. It's more than just a list of the shows that you've subscribed to. Uh, It really is meant to make podcast listening a better experience for you. So go check it out. If you don't like it, no big deal, but go try the Himalaya podcasting app. So let's talk about cost. And specifically, I want to talk about the sunk cost fallacy. It makes me really happy that I see an economic concept like the sunk cost fallacy thrown around all the time in football conversations, and so I want to talk about it. I want to define it and get everybody on the same page as to like what the sunk cost fallacy means, and then more generic and broadly, I want to talk about the concept of cost, because it is a helpful tool that we use all the time, 
whether or not we even realize it. So I think that merits talking about as well. But the sunk cost fallacy essentially goes like this. It is the idea that once something is spent, a resource, be it money or in football terms, you know, salary cap or draft capital, once it's spent, it's spent. And don't cry over spilt milk. I think a good example of this is like Laquan Treadwell. Say Laquan Treadwell doesn't make the team. It's not better to keep him because, oh, now it means the first round pick was wasted. The first round pick has already been spent. If there are six wide receivers on the roster better than Laquan Treadwell, he should not make the team regardless of what was spent on him. And I see it thrown around. I especially see it thrown around. This might have been a better episode to do like during the salary cap saving times. Um, But I saw it thrown around a lot with regards to contracts like Riley Reefs. If you recall, Riley Reef is making $11 million, I think, or something around that in 2019. And some people think that's an overpay. I tend to kind of agree. I don't think he's worth quite that much, but I don't think it's too egregious. But cutting him, if you wanted to save all that money, he would incur a $6 million dead cap penalty, which means that salary cap space that you don't get back. You still get penalized $6 million. You save net $5 million. But cutting him is a little harder, right? Because you still take that $6 million penalty. And the argument against the thing I just said is that, well, the $6 million is going to be spent whether Riley Reef is on the team or not. So treat him like, you know, a guy that you can cut and save $5 million by doing so. And that is something that I'm going to get to later. I'm going to address that point later. But that's the sunk cost fallacy. The $6 million is spent whether or not you cut Riley Reef. So don't use it to make that decision. So that logic is pretty straightforward and doesn't really warrant a whole segment, but I think what is worth talking about is like how the sunk cost fallacy kind of creeps into our minds and our biases whether or not we like it, you know? Like I I think it makes sense on the whole to say, okay, that $6 million is not coming back whether or not you cut Riley Reef, so don't treat him like, you know, a guy who incurs a $6 million penalty. Treat him like a guy that you can cut and save $5 million on. And, And I think by that logic... I'm okay with Riley Reef because for $5 million, which is like his, I guess you'd call it like his true price, he is a pretty good deal. You know, he's probably, like, if you wanted to cut Riley Reef and then get another left tackle, it would have cost more than $5 million to get that. I think we learned that when we did all our, like, mock off-seasons and mock free agencies where we cut Riley Reef and had to try to replace him with, like, Kendall Lamb or something horrible. Like, we kind of learned that it wasn't worth it to cut him. But in terms of, like, emotional idea of it, like, let's look back at, like, Laquan Treadwell or even Trey Waynes early in his career. You know, early in Waynes' career, he was pretty bad. He really struggled, especially in that first Hall of Fame game. You know, we saw him, like, incur a bunch of penalties and get, like, beat down the sideline all day, and he just looked like this total bust. And he's come along, and he's become a pretty good cornerback. Laquan Treadwell, not so much. But those guys are, like, harder to cut because, A, I mean, their contracts are structured where, like, cutting them actually does cost you money. And so the sunk cost fallacy doesn't really apply because you would be, like, creating new costs. But, like, now, Laquan Treadwell could not make the team and the team would actually save a little bit of cap space. They could have cut him and saved money. But it's so much harder to do that, right? Because, oh, you spent a first rounder on him. You're really going to give up on that investment and from a like pure numbers analysis you know cost benefit perspective that logic doesn't fly yes you are going to give up on that investment because it does not project very well that that investment is going to to turn out and it's best to cut your losses before they become greater that is before you keep paying him more and more years of a contract that he doesn't deserve but we kind of can't deny it that's a really hard choice to make 
You know, think like if you're a dynasty fantasy player, you know this all too well. I had a dynasty league where I, I drafted Jordan Howard and he was not very good the year that I drafted him and I ended up trading him away and it was really hard for me to do that. It was really hard for me to like admit defeat, even though I understood that I was making a trade in, in this dynasty trade ended up being a really good deal for me. It was really hard for me to part ways with Jordan Howard because I had like committed to the fact that I really believed in him. And it again, it turned out really well for me, but like in that moment, I was very apprehensive. And even if you play like Madden on franchise mode or, or anything, you know, beyond football, there are moments where it's just really hard to give up on something you've invested in. You know, if you have a house that you bought and it's not appreciating enough and you have to jump ship or a stock that you bought, or if you're into cryptocurrency, that's the kind of thing that that, that happens all the time. It's just innate in our brains that we don't want to admit defeat. We don't want to admit that we were wrong. And we would be naive if we acted like NFL teams and coaches were not also victims of this. You know, they will succumb to this logic all the time as well. I think the best example with the Vikings is Matt Khalil. They should have moved on from Matt Khalil at the first reasonable opportunity to do so. I would say after uh, the, I think it was the 2015 season, when his contract had run out, he was very much unhealthy throughout the whole season. He was very much bad throughout the whole season. He hadn't been healthy in three years. They should have, in hindsight, declined his fifth-year option. You know, again, you have three days between the start of the league year. You know, like the Tuesday the league year flips over, you can cut him between then and the ensuing Friday, and he would not have all that guaranteed money against your cap. But they had they stuck to that fifth-year option, and then they were stuck in the 2016 season with a bad tackle with an $11 million guarantee. And then he got hurt in the second week of the season anyways. And that was it for him in purple, but it was still like very much a decision that they didn't have to make. And a lot of evidence, especially in hindsight where it's easier to see should have had them, you know, cut Matt Khalil and look elsewhere for their left tackle needs. But it's just so hard to do that. You drafted him third overall And even though it was so very clear that, yes, you should give up on this investment, this investment is not going to come. The cost is sunk, as it were. It's still really hard to do. And and I think it's important to respect that, even though, you know, we should expect like GMs and managers and team runners that are, you know, managing these multi-million dollar contracts to know better than to fall victim to that thing. I think it's still understandable when it does happen. Not that it's excusable. I think we're, we're right to criticize it. But I think we can at least like have a little bit of sympathy toward it because, you know, it's wrapped up in human nature. But I also wanted to talk about cost as a more general concept. And, and a lot of this is talking about, you know, I just want to like set up the groundwork to define what a cost is in the NFL. And on a macro level, you know, on, on the team building level, like free agency and trades and the draft and all that stuff, you know, the costs are very straightforward. It costs a draft pick to acquire Brian O'Neill, and it costs a draft pick to trade for Trevor Simeon, and it costs, you know, salary cap space to trade for whoever, right? But cost is defined more nebulously than I think we wish it were. And I think a way to kind of put cost in the proper context is to use the concept of opportunity cost. For example, you know, Mike Hughes did not cost a first round pick. He cost the opportunity to select Will Hernandez. And we can parse that information and we can kind of craft our debate whether or not you agree with the pick. If you use that context and say, you know, Mike Hughes cost the Vikings the opportunity to draft Will Hernandez, or let's do a more black and white example. 
drafting Laquan Treadwell didn't cost a first-round pick. It cost the opportunity to draft Michael Thomas, who I think in hindsight is what everybody would, would say on a redraft was you should have drafted Michael Thomas, right? So the difference between Laquan Treadwell and Michael Thomas is one way to define like just how bad that draft pick was. Turns out it was pretty substantially bad, and that kind of aligns with what we already know about that draft pick is that it was pretty substantially bad. But that sword cuts both ways. You know, we can look at a draft pick that we all universally agree is good, like, say, Daniel Hunter. We all know Daniel Hunter was an excellent draft pick in the third round. And by selecting Daniel Hunter, you gave up on the opportunity to draft all the other defensive ends. And, like, the next end to go was Henry Anderson. The Colts took him. And he hasn't really made much of a career at all. He's a rotational player over there. He's, like, fine. But he's not Daniel Hunter, right? So you gave up on the opportunity to draft Henry Anderson or whoever else to select Daniel Hunter, something that I think you would go back and do again without hesitation. So, you know, I like applying this to draft situations. Like when I talked about in Mock Draft Monday yesterday, you know, I talked about Chris Lindstrom and how he doesn't have as high of a ceiling as some of the other guys in this draft, but who cares? He comes in and he's ready to start and he's already like, his floor is already higher than you need him to be ever. So what's the problem? And I think opportunity cost is a way to parse that. That is to say, by drafting Chris Lindstrom, you're forfeiting the opportunity to draft guys like Dalton Risner or Eric McCoy or Elgin Jenkins, or you probably don't take one on, on day two if you take Chris Lindstrom at 18, and you're forfeiting the opportunity to draft, you know, probably like one of the higher players that will fall, because somebody always falls. There's going to be one of like DK Metcalf or Noah Fant or Devin Bush or whoever. You're, you're also forfeiting the opportunity to have those players. You know, it's hard to say like the 18th overall pick is worth like this much. And we did the draft chart thing, and you can say you expect like this much AV out of it and blah, blah, blah. And you can kind of compare it historically. But ultimately what the 18th pick is worth is the best player available at that moment when the Vikings are on the clock. So when you're there, pick the player that's worth the most to you because that's going to be the most you get against your opportunity. So that is going to do it for today's episode of Locked on Vikings. Thank you guys so much for listening. As always, you can find me on Twitter at LukeBronNFL. You can find the show on Twitter at Locked on Vikings. You can find this show on Himalaya or any of the other fine podcast apps. And if you don't like podcast apps, you can always ask your smart device to play podcast Locked on Vikings. Again, my name is Luke Braun. I am signing off for now. I will talk to you all tomorrow. And as always, Skull.